ازمه اوكرانيا بالنسبه للاسعار يعني اديك شايف كل احنا هنا تاثرنا بالنسبه للقمح تضاعف سعره رغيف العيش In terms of prices we are getting affected due to the crisis in Ukraine Wheat prices doubled and we are now facing a problem in producing bread The prices of wheat corn and rice increased Everything increased in price كل حاجه غليت فاحنا هنا عايزين The Russian invasion of Ukraine has upended food supply chains over the past six months. Kiev, once a critical global exporter, is now engaged in a protracted war of attrition with Moscow. For the Middle East and North Africa, this is having devastating consequences. Populations contending with currency devaluation, conflict and COVID-19 and are squeezed even further, given the region's over-dependency on exports from Russia and Ukraine. Tens of thousands are unable to afford basic food staples as stocks dry up and prices soar. Middle Eastern governments have little fiscal space to maneuver in this increasingly tense environment. Limited foreign reserves undermine their purchasing power. Decades-old subsidy programs are putting a strain on the public purse. Meanwhile, across the world, nations are ring-fencing their exports, driving prices up further. Funding for aid programs or outside investment has also fallen. In this bleak picture, what happens next? How can governments in the region best respond to the looming food catastrophe in the Middle East? How can the international community respond? Is the beacon of hope deal to unlock Ukrainian ships out of the Black Sea the answer? Or do they need to start looking for alternative sources? I'm Rosie McCabe. Welcome to the New Arab Voice. Ukraine and Russia are not only the breadbasket of Europe, but it's also really the breadbasket of the Middle East. So this is Nicole Robinson, a senior research associate specializing in economic, security and political challenges in the Middle East and North Africa. She works at the Heritage Foundation. Many staples like wheat, corn and sunflower oil are heavily imported by Middle Eastern countries from Ukraine and Russia. Go to places like Jordan, places like Egypt, you'll have bread at every meal of the day breakfast lunch and dinner so it is a vital commodity over 80% of both lebanon and egypt's wheat imports come from russia and ukraine usually these imports offer an affordable geographically convenient option to supplement a shortfall in domestic supplies however putin's february 24th invasion cut off vital shipping routes through the black sea Egypt does produce its own domestic grain production, but it's really not enough to keep up with its large population. Egypt out of all the countries in the Middle East has one of the biggest populations, about 105 million people. And so domestic supply only covers about 62% of its population. Now historically Egypt has sort of substituted that domestic supply by importing the rest of the grain from Russia and Ukraine. But now with, you know, supply chain disruptions with the current war in Ukraine it has made it difficult so as of right now what Egypt has done is it's is relying on its strategic reserve but that's estimated according to the Egyptian government to last only until February 2023 before the invasion consumer prices in Egypt rose around 7% in February by July they had climbed by 13.6% for Lebanon the situation is also alarming A financial meltdown resulted in over three quarters of the population living in poverty at the end of 
Lebanon does not really have its own domestic grain production like Egypt does. Most of their production is, you know, fruits and vegetables. And so they heavily, out of every Middle East country, they import close to 95% of grain. And that really comes from Russia and Ukraine. Historically, governments in the Middle East have offset fluctuating food prices through subsidy programs. The food systems in the Middle East in general have never been that good. And one of the main reasons why is because of the subsidy system. So, you know, subsidies in general are rooted in the social contract of many of these countries. They were really introduced between 1940 to 1970. Initially, they were only intended to stabilize prices coming out of World War II. But a lot of these governments that came to power, very socialist governments during Arab nationalist time, Nasser in Egypt and then others outside of that, saw that this subsidy system was a good way to implement social protections. And so it was a good mechanism for almost regime survival. In practice, subsidies sound like a good idea. The government reduces the price of key commodities by paying part of the costs. Provided goods are sold at a lower cost, more families can afford them. On the other hand, these systems are often outdated, wildly expensive, and used to legitimise authoritarian rule in the Middle East. But... These subsidy systems were increasingly harder to maintain, especially during the 1970s. And then fast forward till the 1990s, a lot of these governments decide to restructure their economies to fit the global market, and subsidies never really were discussed. Egypt, for example, has a long history of subsidising food staples such as bread. In 1941, Rationing was imposed on the Egyptian people as a means to cope with wartime scarcities. In the 1960s, the food subsidy system was expanded. Over the following decade, the sharp rise in the price of wheat prompted attempts by the government to reduce subsidies on some staples. Riots ensued. Today, President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi spends 5.5 billion subsidising food items for 66.7 million Egyptians. Half of the money goes into bread subsidies. We, re- we actually call them subsidized because what really happened is that the government sets the price below cost. This is Patrick Mardini. He is the CEO of the Lebanese Institute for Market Studies, a research centre focused on the economic challenges facing the Middle East. But at the same time, the government will say to wheat importers, don't worry, I will cover part of the bill, right? So what happens is, I mean, in Lebanon, for example, the government covers 95% of the price of wheat. But then it is more profitable for bakeries and for wheat importers to resell this wheat at the market price rather than use it to produce bread. So if you are actually buying your wheat at 5%, the actual cost, why would you produce bread and sell it at a very low price, a price set by the government. Why don't you resell it as wheat at the full price in the market? Patrick believes the government should adopt more resourceful ways to manage food accessibility, bypassing the wheat importers. So a different, more clever way to adjust this process is to actually give the money directly to the poor. Why would you want to subsidize bread, Okay, use the money to subsidize bread, and this subsidy would never reach the population because, you know, Wheat importers would simply take the money. Why don't you give the money directly via food stamps, via a debit card, cash cards, whatever? I mean, you have different processes you can put in place and, and give money to people to allow them to buy bread or anything as they would like to consume. Maybe they prefer to consume an alternative to bread. At least you give them the choice. 
Jordan and Egypt are at least aware of the importance of switching from subsidies to food stamps or cash cards, according to Patrick. In Lebanon, which has been marred by political inaction and factionalism, decision-makers have been slow to react. I mean, this would be a wiser, a more economic and more effective mechanism of alleviating the pressure of the population, assuming that the government has some fiscal space, assuming that the government has some money to spend, of course. In the Middle East, few of any governments in the region have, quote, fiscal space, end quote. Debt, depleted foreign reserves and a dependency on foreign aid have reduced their purchasing power. However, in the end, Patrick believes governments will be forced to act. I think that as soon as the government lifts subsidies on bread, and I think they are forced to do it because they don't have a lot of choice, they don't have a lot of money to spend anymore anyway, they will be forced to do it. I think that we will see a substitution process. People will try to substitute bread with other cheaper goods that they can afford. One resident of Tripoli, queuing alongside dozens of others for bread, summed up the urgency of the current situation best. The government needs to take a look at what's happening on the streets, how it is humiliating the people. No one can sustain living in this country. People are travelling and many are leaving by sea. Take care of us. We can't handle this anymore. International actors also play an important role in alleviating the catastrophic impact of food shortages in the Middle East. The most recent example of efforts to revitalise food supply chains is, of course, the landmark Black Sea Deal. The agreement, brokered by the UN and Turkey in July, allows for commercial food exports from three Ukrainian ports to be safely transported via corridors in the Black Sea. Passing through the Turkish-controlled Bosporus Strait, Ships which were grounded by Russia's invasion can once again be sold on international markets. The UN Secretary-General hailed the deal as a beacon of hope. This is an agreement for the world. It will bring relief for developing countries on the edge of bankruptcy and the most vulnerable people on the edge of famine. And it will help stabilise global food prices, which were already at record levels even before the war, a true nightmare for developing countries. As of August 20th, Turkey's defence ministry said a total of 27 ships had left Ukraine. However, in much of the celebration over this deal, a key bit of information is often missing. Where is the food actually going, and does it arrive there safely? After that deal happened with the UN, one of the holding points for a ship was looking at Durham wheat, a huge shipment that was supposed to go to Lebanon. And the shipment sort of disappeared and then reappeared in Syria, in Latakia port. Unclear of of if it docked, if it was being distributed into Syria. So, you know, you have these shipments that are just sitting at the port in Ukraine and Russia that that are not going anywhere. Indeed, the Razoni, the first ship to leave Ukraine under the deal, was stuck floundering after the Lebanese buyer refused to accept the grain over timing and quality issues. Other destinations for the grain, according to UN reports, are Turkey, the UK, and Ireland. I think the biggest issue is, is how do you verify these mechanisms, right? In a place like Lebanon, don't even have a government right now that's functioning. And so there's a lot of political sort of complications related to Lebanon in particular. So in a place like Syria, if you look at the ports that are available, Latakia is controlled by the Russians, right? So how are you supposed to verify that these 
shipments are, are getting to these countries. One solution is for international organisations, rather than markets, to ensure the shipments of grain reach the countries that need it most and to oversee its efficient distribution. International organisations like the World Food Programme. Quite frankly, World Food Programme is involved and is engaged in its shipments and we are providing support. This is Praveen Agarawal, the World Food Programme Country Director for Egypt. Praveen has spent decades working for the UN body across the world. He described the Black Sea deal as releasing a valve on a pressure cooker. Millions and millions of people will be, quote, better off, end quote. We had one vessel which just left and it had about 26,000 tons, if I'm not mistaken, and it was headed towards Ethiopia and for programs that the World Food Program is carrying out. It's expected to arrive, I believe, during the course of the week or early next week. This is really a very, very exciting moment. And will some of these ships head to the Middle East? Yes, yes, of course. They will be coming this way. I know Egypt already received one shipment already, and it was of good qualities. Egypt's main importations come from that region, so they will, they will receive like all the others. What about the Rizzoni, which was supposed to head to Lebanon? What happened there? Let's not forget that these issues will come up as, as we move forward, but these are also issues that we're constantly supervising, and we do take steps as a welfare program of having cargo inspected before it leaves the port, have agencies and companies that are looking at this process. We have it on arrival. We have assurances on the moisture content and quality content as it moves. So all of these have been on hold for a very long time. So it takes time for that machinery to once again get moving and on route. When asked about how the World Food Programme works in Egypt, Praveen said the organisation operates closely with the government and focuses on building domestic agricultural capacity. I think these recent crises have shed much more light on the necessity to increase national production and to be a little bit more dependent upon national production. But that's not a solution. It's not always cheaper to produce it nationally. It can be also cheaper to bring it in. So it is very important that there is a balance between the two, because if you go for national production, you need to build the entire value chain, you need to build warehouses, you need to build infrastructure that will enable you to also harvest and keep that there. The World Food Programme in Egypt works with small landowners to promote innovation and increase yields. It also supports land consolidation, water distribution and female empowerment programmes. In some, it has a model for agricultural sustainability, which it wants to scale up. But, of course, this takes time and resilience. To address shortfalls in supply right now, Egypt, like Lebanon and other MENA states, is also looking for alternative sources for its requirements. So Lebanon have been, and Middle East countries in general, have been searching to alternative destinations from which they would import wheat. And here we're talking about the USA, Argentina, India. India, for example, can become a lead supplier of wheat to the region. While New Delhi banned private overseas sales of grain in May, It later said it would make allowances for countries like Egypt with food security needs. This week, Cairo said it plans to buy 180,000 tonnes from India, enough to provide around 1 million people bread for a year, but only a tiny fraction of the 66.7 million Egyptians covered by state-issued ration cards. There's also the fact, says Patrick, 
that any new trade route will face a series of obstacles. But with the higher international price of wheat, and that's that's a barrier. You have a longer road, so higher transportation cost, and you have higher fuel cost, so longer routes, and you need to pay more for the fuel, higher insurance cost. For Patrick, when looking for solutions to the looming food crisis in the Middle East, you don't have to look too far. Gulf states, he explains, can play a critical role in financing insecure nations. Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the Emirates, you know, all those countries, they do import 90% of their food, so they are suffering from higher prices of food. But at the same time, they are taking advantage of higher oil prices, because also with the prices, we are having skyrocketing oil prices. And those high earnings coming from oil and gas exports would allow them to have better fiscal balance, more money to spend, better external balance. Traditionally and historically, oil exporting nations, the GCC specifically, tend to help the other countries in those kind of situations. Again, no solution is without complications. Destabilisation within countries, particularly Lebanon, could put off any outside investment from the Gulf Cooperation Council and beyond. However, without it, it seems that vicious cycles of poverty breeding instability and instability breeding poverty are likely to continue. The MENA it's very critical because last time we had high food prices, it was in the spring of 2011. We ended up with the Arab Spring. So food inflation in countries like Arab countries can lead to a lot of social instability. Last words to Nicole. If you look at just the the problems, the you know multifaceted problems politically, economically in these Middle East countries, it really only takes a trigger to set the countries off. If you look during the Arab Spring back in 2010, you know one of the main slogans that was famously seen across, especially in Egypt and Tunisia, were, were asking for three things. Right, they were asking in, in Egypt for Aish, which is bread. Um, they were asking for haria, freedom, and then they were asking for uh, social justice. Um, so, you know, those, if you look at the, the breakdown of what those three demands were, I mean, the order of them, bread is at the top. And so it is really important. You know, if you look just at Middle East countries in general, it's not really that great. Politically and economically, they are very unstable and there could be just one thing to set off each of these countries. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening to The New Arab Voice. This episode was produced and written by me, Rosie McCabe, with additional help from Hugo Goodridge and Nick McAlpin. Our theme music was by Omar Arfil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news from the region.